Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. The first loss in jobs for an entire month since April. We are seeing uh, the second wave of job losses, the second wave of the coronavirus, and the second wave of pain, hopefully uh, jerking uh, Congress into more action. At least that's the implication from Marcus Jeffrey Rosenberg, Blackfort, uh, BlackRock Portfolio Manager of the Systematic Multi-Strategy Fund, joining us right now. Your thoughts, Jeff, on this report? Yeah, I think you guys have it exactly right. You look at that market reaction and you see you know, slightly higher yields on what is a very disappointing report. And it's really about looking through this report to its implications for uh, for fiscal policy. And yes, uh, you know, fiscal policy expectations were high. This report just underscores the likelihood that we'll see significant additional fiscal stimulus in the new administration, from the new administration, from the new Congress. And that's why you're seeing a little mm -hmm. bit higher yields. You know, the report is remarkably weak with regards to leisure and hospitality down almost yeah. 500,000 jobs. That's really what's taking the headline number down. And that's just very clearly about the COVID uh, resurgence right. here that we're seeing. And that's just underscoring, again, the, the need for more fiscal policy. So it's a it's a very kind of different bond market reaction. But, but I think it makes a lot of sense that we're looking right. past the near-term weakness towards the policy response. And that means better growth and, and higher rates. And that's really higher rates and steeper curve. That's been a trend. I don't think this report is going to take us off that trend. Futures up nine, Dow futures up 55, a little bit of an ease back in equities at this moment. Jeff Rosenberg, I know at Carnegie Mellon you took horse and cart 202, an important course. The research this morning is extraordinary about inflation expectations and how they fold into the yield uh, market, about oil surging, about a weaker dollar and the presumption of a weakened dollar. Which is the horse and which is the cart? Real-world dynamics like dollar in oil, or is it the fixed-income market? Well, the, the, first of all, on, on, on oil, that's going to affect the headline levels of inflation. Markets and longer-term inflation expectations are really going to focus on, on core. Now, the expectations here and the developments are really about a reflationary trade rolling through the fixed income markets. You see it in terms of market-based measures of inflation, tips break even, measures breaking out to the upside. You see it in nominal yield measures, and you see it in the steepening of the yield curve. The overall conclusion here is expectations for significant monetary and fiscal policy coordination to deliver a reflationary thrust to the economy that then flows through into financial markets, but it starts with financial markets expectations. And that's what you're seeing building. It, it's been building for some time. It certainly got uh, some acceleration post the Georgia runoff election results, and certainly today. Uh, and this negative news is going to be looked through to its implications to further the reflationary fiscal policy response. You know, I don't want to read too much into the immediate market response, but I do think it's interesting, Jeff, that you see the bond market reacting more than the equity markets, that equities actually took a little bit of a dip in futures trading, whereas you saw uh, bonds take a definitive move, uh, price lower, yield higher on the expectation of stimulus. Have we reached a point 
where higher yields with such a lagging economy on the, in the backdrop becomes a headwind for stocks. In other words, it sort of uh, threatens the thesis of going into stocks at such high valuation simply because there is no alternative, Jeff. It's, it's a great question. I don't think we're there yet. You, you got to take a step back from these changes in, in yield levels that, you know, from an environment where yields were exceptionally depressed, and, and certainly when we think about the 10-year yield being significantly below 1% throughout the post-COVID environment, you know, we've recently breached that level, but these yields are still exceptionally low out the yield curve. And the Fed is telling you they're happy to see that. Now, they're not going to be happy to see a disruptive increase in interest rates, 25 basis points higher on the day. But you look at all of the forecasts for the year and they center around 25 basis points for the year. That's fine in terms of mm -hmm. fiscal stimulus <clears throat> boosting market expectations without those market right. expectations undoing the financial stability that the Fed is targeting here. So I think if we have these kind of gradual increases in rates, uh, that's not going to get in the way right. of financial stability and having to have the Fed intervene. Jeff Rosenberg with us with BlackRock and also Michael McKee of Bloomberg with his wonderful analysis. He's had some time to dive into the report. Jeff Rosenberg, Michael McKee mentions the 500,000 statistic on bars and restaurants. I think no surprise to anyone in New York. Michael McKee, can you extrapolate any way to the early February report? Uh, early February next month or a year this ago? This January report. No, can you get <laughs> the out January front report. of where uh, we are right now? In a sense, you can, because it doesn't look like any of the lockdown uh, situation has changed. And as a matter of fact, uh, we're seeing more cases, more deaths every day. Uh, we're setting records. So it looks like we're going to be perhaps even in worse shape. A lot of what happened in December came about in the early part of the month. Uh, and the surveys taken the week of the, the that includes the 12th of the month so uh, the 12th of the month in uh, in uh, January is not looking good right now and so I would imagine that we will not see any additional hiring however have people already lost their jobs? That's going to be the question. If if we lost so many in December, do we see a significant number of people who go off payrolls or are they just remaining off payrolls? So let's just tie this all together and just sort of highlight how a pivotal week this really has been, how an, un, an exceptional start to a year following an unprecedented 2020. And Jeff Rosenberg, we started this segment talking about how people have had to rewrite their year-ahead theses in the past week after just writing them days earlier after what happened with the Georgia election and given what we're seeing with the surprise now uh, with a labor market that is much weaker than many had expected. Jeff, are you changing any of your 2021 theses based on the week's uh, action? Well, you know, I, I, I don't think so. The, the thing that has happened in the over the course of the week is the expectations were already going into the year that growth would be better than expected. And so the Georgia elections have only added to the confidence that market participants have that growth due to fiscal policy support will be better than expected. And that's that's providing some cushion. That's providing some safety net to the positive sentiment around financial markets and for the bond market for the expectations that yields will continue to gradually rise. So I don't think we're seeing a, a significant change from that. I think we're seeing it reinforced with today's news and with the news uh, on the elections mm -hmm. and the outlook for fiscal policy. Jeffrey Rosenberg, thank you so much with BlackRock. Greatly appreciate your time with us on this jobs report and, of course, our Fed meetings as well.
Speaker Pelosi, moving forward the discussion, it will be an eventful Friday. The resignations of the Secretary of Transportation, the Secretary of Education this morning. We are resigned to speak to French Hill, the Republican from Arkansas, French Hill of Little Rock, and of course has been a consistent Republican voice uh, giving us conversation on Bloomberg surveillance. Congressman Hill, there seems to be a, a divide, as we just saw from Senator Sass of Nebraska, the language that the Senator from Nebraska used as compared to the senator from Missouri, Hawley, and the senator from Texas, uh, uh, Ted Cruz. How do you bring together a Republican Party to be in minority with President Biden? Well, Happy New Year, Tom. Thanks for having me. This is a critical issue. And at this moment in American history, I think all the leaders in both parties, on both sides of the Capitol and on both sides of the aisle, need to focus on our peaceful transfer of the presidency on noon, January 20th. And we need to not add to the brinksmanship that we've seen from Speaker Pelosi in the last uh, day on the 25th Amendment or that we saw from Senator Cruz or Senator Hawley on this uh, false narrative that somehow we're going to have a different outcome on January 6th by action of the Congress, which was never uh, in uh, the Constitution was never going to happen. And I think the rhetoric since the election contributed to the disaster we saw here uh, the afternoon of January 6th, where people were misled. They had a misunderstanding of what might happen on January 6th in Washington, D.C. It's almost of a Whig party of another time and place. And I would suggest the Whig party not so much associated with Arkansas, but mostly uh, to the east in Kentucky. Do you risk becoming a minority party with this great fracture between, say, Ted Cruz and Ben Sass? I think we need to remind ourselves of what the Republican tenets are and go back to advocating for those limited government, limited scope of regulatory and tax burdens on the American people, equal justice under the law, more opportunities for people of all incomes, uh, and a strong, robust national security and leadership in the world. Those are the tenets of the Republican platform. I've heard uh, Senator uh, Cruz speak passionately about them. I've heard Senator Sass speak passionately about them. That's what the Republican Party needs to get back out and advocate for and step away from uh, what we've seen in the, since the election. Congressman, are you happy with how President Trump and the Republican leadership has handled the rollout of the coronavirus vaccine? Well, look, first, let's say that the vaccine will go down in history, this development effort from late January 2020 to the rollout of a vaccine around the 1st of December is one of the great global health initiatives and success stories in history. So the CARES Act's $10 billion uh, for coronavirus uh, pandemic vaccine development, the president's quick uh, uh, direction of the FDA and the NIH to work on that is a success story. The rollout uh, and the manufacturing of it around the world, I think, has been impressive. It's gotten to the states, but we need to make sure the states focus uh, where it's needed on essential workers and our elderly population. You all were talking about incidences of death, and you look at that compared to accidental death by any choice, and again, it's concentrated in the older age groups or more vulnerable to the coronavirus. So after essential workers, 
there's no doubt that's where the vaccine should be focused. So, Congressman, uh, that is true, and yet the, the states really have been the ones in charge, and only about a third of the vaccine that's been circulated on average has been deployed, and there has been uh, reports of, for example, doctors who are not uh, in the main lines having to call up their pharmacies and their contacts and say, how do I get vaccine? Do you regret that there isn't a more federally central uh, organized rollout plan that would have smoothed out some of these kinks? Well, it possibly could have been better. We've never done this before, but the defense logistics, getting the vaccine with the private sector uh, produced, approved, and shipped has been, again, I think an extraordinary accomplishment. In Arkansas, speaking to our governor, we're generally pleased with the distribution to hospitals and to pharmacies, and we're working hard to get that out to the people who need it first. And of course, you know, the storage has been a challenge. Everyone recognizes that, particularly in the Pfizer vaccine. And so that's limited distribution. But the Moderna vaccine that's going to go out to more rural counties and more regular pharmacy use, that I think will expand the vaccine even faster. French Hill, to get back to the politics of the moment, and we consider the two gentlemen from Vermont, uh, Leahy and Sanders, maybe we'll have chairmanships within a new Senate. Perhaps the Democrats will manage to the middle. That seems to be how they won this time around. How does the Republican Party within the primary process manage to the middle? Another good point. I mean, this is a center-right country. We saw that with Nancy Pelosi. Yes. We saw that, and it's up to uh, both in both parties. They both have a primary challenge from the left in the Democratic Party and from uh, the right, I guess you say, the more right in the Republican Party. We do that, I think, by, again, focusing on our basic tenets that I went over a moment ago. That's what we have to do is do more education and more communication with our primary voters about what the Republican Party's goals are. Why are we being elected? Why do we run? That's our obligation as candidates. Okay, but this is so important. Congressman Hill, very quickly here. This is so important because there is a social overlay of social policy and issues over general Republican issues. How do you combine those forward to 2022 and 2024 and win? Well, I think we won with our message of what we said was our commitment to America in 2020. We picked up, we didn't have a single incumbent lose in the House this year. And we have a new, diverse, aggressive a uh, group of new members in the House. I think we'll continue that momentum going into 2022, particularly if you see the Biden administration, as you say, not govern from the center uh, with a divided Senate and a divided House, but try to, again, uh, propose uh, progressive left policies. French Hill, have a pleasant weekend after this Happy historic week. You, Congressman Tom. Hill of Arkansas with us, and we thank you. This first week of January... It is about Eurasia Group, Dr. Bremer and Mr. Kupchins. I'll get it out. I can't talk on a Friday, folks, ever. (laughs) Uh, They're wonderful top risks of 2021. In that is Europe and the changing of the guard of Angela Merkel moving on. Mr. Macron with huge issues. Midge Rahman joins with an update with Eurasia Group. Midge, we haven't talked uh, enough about the travails of France and and Macron. Why should America worry about the fragility of Mr. Macron? 
because I think, Tom, Europe's medium-term stability depends more on what happens in the French election than the German one. You know, the outcome of the German election is kind of known. It's going to be a black-green government. We don't know who will replace Merkel, but it doesn't really matter that much because it will be, it will be a, a, a mainstream leader sitting on top of a very pro-European right. coalition. In France, in France, you have a health crisis, an economic crisis, and a security crisis. Think of all the uh, terrorist incidents that uh, took place right. at the very back end of last year, and they're all converging. And that, I think, brings into question right. the Macron question. And I think on top of that, of course, because instability in France would be a big problem for Europe and a big problem for America. Does France have a Trumpian equivalent? I mean, Guy Johnson and I, folks, there for the French elections and the stunning sight of Mr. Macron uh, walking across that magnificent courtyard, I'm going to guess, from the 19th or 18th century. And in Midge-Raman, the question is the, the right, if you will, of France. Does it exist? You've got a very weak centre-right and a very weak centre-left. Le Pen is always, as you know, Tom, waiting in the wings, and next year will be no different. What's interesting is Marine Le Pen has not really been able to capitalise on COVID. She's not really been able to capitalise on the challenges and the troubles that Macron has been facing, both personally and his government. But the question is, depending on how he deals with potential risk of a third lockdown and this mutant strain that's crossed the channel from Great Britain now into France. The glacial pace of the vaccine rollout, there's a lot of expectation of high-profile business closures and mass unemployment in the first four to six months of this year in France. You know, depending on how Macron deals with those challenges could impact the dynamic heading into the race next year. And I think most people expect, and I think this is correct, that it will be a Macron-Le Pen runoff again in May next year. Mitch, you mentioned just uh, across uh, the channel to the UK, lockdown there uh, rollout of the vaccine slower, as we see in many parts of the world. Give us a sense of how things are going in the early days of the lockdown in the UK. I mean, it's a big mess, frankly, because Boris Johnson is just not across the crisis. You know, he's not good at taking and leaning into decisions. He's waiting until the very last moment. He gave a very big interview with a very high profile presenter here on Sunday, where he effectively told everybody it would be fine to return to school the following day. That evening, he plunged the country back into a third lockdown. So I think mm. the government's control of the pandemic, Boris Johnson's competence, the competence of his administration, his cabinet, they're all really, I think, in the firing line. And that's on top of he has delivered a deal on Brexit. That's correct. But now the implications of that deal are really beginning to be felt. Delays at the ports, delays getting into the UK, and I think that just it creates a, a set of questions, really, about the credibility and competence of the government that I think are going to stay with Johnson for some time. What type of risk do those challenges to uh, Prime Minister Johnson, what do they pose to his, his government going forward? Okay, I think there's not a leadership concern in the short term. But, but the pandemic now, and I think the, gov the, the perception of how the government has managed the pandemic really, really hangs on the big bet the government has made on the vaccinations. So they've really got to, I think, start getting jabs in people's arms and getting the population vaccinated. And if the government is able to do that effectively, so let's say we're moving towards the Easter break and a large part of the vulnerable population has been vaccinated by that time as the government is 
claiming will be the case, then he may be able to emerge. You know, if you're thinking a year, two years down the track, relatively unscathed from this crisis, if the vaccination bet does not work out, um, then I think the government's in trouble. And then I think Boris Johnson yeah. is in trouble. And that'll be a question in 2024. Ms. Rahman, where does demand come from in Europe? I mean, basically, it's underperformed America for a jillion years. I, I know there's glimmers of, you know, real pop and all that. There isn't much of a tech sector as well. What is the might of the European consumer now to help jumpstart everything like happens routinely in the United States? I think this is a great question, Tom. And, you know, senior European policymakers I talk to, they basically think the EU has missed the boat on digitization. I think you're right. You know, we don't have that technological, that innovation dynamic that you see in the States, where the EU is now placing its bed is on the green transition on greening the economy. And you'll see the big 750 billion recovery fund that was agreed at the end of last year is really being used and seen as a vehicle to try and promote that green transition. And the UK is obviously at the forefront of that and will be with the COP Climate Summit at the end of the year. The French are implementing a 100 billion recovery plan that again is very much focused on the green transition. So I think that's where the EU sees itself being a possible leader whether or not mm. that will work out, again, we'll, we'll need to see. But that's the area I'd point to as one of big growth for the European economy over the medium term. Midge Rahman, thank you so much. And thank you to all of your Razor Group. Just brilliant work. And- yep. We're just going to frame where America's economy is. Tiffany Wilding joins from PIMCO. Tiffany, I don't want a lot of numbers. I just want to know what the next six months looks like. You guys are acclaimed for the new normal. Is this the new normal? Well, I, I certainly hope not, Tom. I mean, you know, the, the it was clearly a very weak employment report, for example, this morning, which I think, you know, clearly showed that the economy is still hurting from the virus pandemic, you know, and as a result of, uh, you know, the targeted business closures that had to that had to happen in order to try to contain that pandemic. We certainly hope that's not the new normal. Uh, but you asked me to, to think about the next six months ahead. Yeah. You know, and I think we're really, you know, we're really optimistic that the, the key word here will be reacceleration. Um, and I say that because, you know, we, you know, we, we do have a vaccine. We hope that the vaccine uh, uh, you know, distribution can be ramped up. You know, but in, in addition to that, we have fiscal policymakers in Washington, which we think will, will, will certainly support the recovery, continue to support the recovery. We just got a $900 billion stimulus bill in late December to help bridge the gap for people, uh, you know, while we're kind of dealing with the winter and the COVID virus. We think you could see under a, a Democratic control of Washington another trillion dollars uh, you know well, that could be that could come about in March and that's really going to help the economy sort of bridge this and reaccelerate into the back uh, half okay. of the year. And I, I don't want you to put a number on it because I don't need the general counsel Pimco calling me up and saying <laughs> I was out of bounds. But Tiffany, to take Claudia Sam as just one example, the liberal economists in Europe, in America, who are saying you guys are nuts at the margin of this billion or that trillion and we're going to need a certain percentage of GDP, which is six or seven or eight trillion dollars of aid no matter how it comes are we closer to that view with the news of the last week yeah so we think you could get 
um, a, another, another, uh, so basically a total of two trillion this year. So another trillion, and that's just in COVID relief. Um, and it's certainly possible uh, that that outside of that, you can also get you know some infrastructure spending or investment in education and healthcare um, that you know that the, the Democrats have been talking about. Um, you know, which which would obviously be spending you know over a longer time frame. You know, but that would help. Um, and I think that's something that is certainly needed um, and would be positive. Positive over the longer term, you would hope for things like productivity, uh, you know, labor force uh, quality, uh, you know, e- you know, things like that. So, you know, I think certainly we're, you know, we're in the right track in terms of first, let's think about the pandemic. Let's, you know, kind of help the the folks that need it during this time. Let's bridge the gap there. Let's set ourselves up, um, you know, for not having the longer term damage in the economy. You know, and then after that focus, after we've sort of dealt with that, um, we're getting vaccine distribution. Then let's think about some of these longer term trends. And, and what can policy do, uh, you know, to lift productivity in the future? Tiffany mentioned, uh, you know, as we take a look at some of this em- employment data that we received this morning, how concerned are you about uh, perhaps the permanence of some of this unemployment of some of these folks who are out of work? You know, at the beginning of this pandemic, we kind of thought, oh, gee, you know, it's kind of temporary. They're quote unquote furloughed. How concerned are you about the permanent nature, the damage done to our employment situation? Yeah, I mean, that's something that that we always have to worry about, you know, and we want to try to, you know, reduce the extent to which you get that permanent damage, you know, and I I think that the issue here is that um, it is really kind of the, you know, as as more people are unemployed for longer, you have skills that start to atrophy, et cetera. So, you know, really what you want to try to do is when you have these kinds of shocks, you want to get people back in the labor market, get them working as, as soon as you possibly can so you don't have some of that longer term damage. You know, I think, you know, one thing to consider here that's very important that we're monitoring is that you will have some econ- what we call economic reallocation that happens. You know, in other words, there will be some sort of longer-term scars in certain industries um, from this pandemic. You know, but but uh, but there also be some some good things probably that come out of it as well. So, for example, of that, you know, maybe the leisure and, and hospitality sector never fully gets back to normal, even though it will recover. Um, but on the other side of that, you'll have some uh, you know improving trends in kind of things like warehousing, you know, transportation, you know as more people continue to shop online or things like that, um, you can do more things that are, um, uh, you know, via Zoom or, uh, you know, tele- telecommunications. You know, so I think that you, you need to be able to bridge the gap for people so they can get new jobs and new industries and you can get that economic reallocation that happens quickly and smoothly and you don't get the longer term damage. You know, and, and we certainly are optimistic that, you know, we'll be able to do that, you know, given the, the stimulus that we've gotten to date and, you know, and our expectation for, for more support from the government going forward. Tiffany, we're hearing, you know, uh, you know, kind of somewhat uh, tongue-in-cheek uh, comparisons to the 1920s here. How much pent-up demand do you think there really is out there in the economy? I'm, I'm trying to fast-forward a little bit to kind of June, July, August. Um, do you think people are going to kind of just kind of burst out of their ha- homes and apartments and go out there and spend um, well, you know, I, th- I think, you know, again, like one thing, one sort of measure, you know, I obviously love to look at data and, and measurements and things like that. You know, one measure, I think, to look at the, the potential pent-up demand is, is really the savings rate. Right. Um, yeah. You know, and as we've seen, the savings rate, you know, has gone up a lot. And and I think that's important. You know, a lot of, you know, we some of the, the, the spending and the household relief that, that people have gotten, they've not been able to spend because, uh, you know, things are shut down. Um, you know, and, and so I, I 
I certainly think that um, you know you will get some some pin up demand for for that type of spending when when things reopen. Certainly, um, you know. But again, as I mentioned, you know, I don't I don't think things will be quite the same as they were prior to this pandemic. You know, because I think people have figured out that uh, you know they can they can work from home more seamlessly, um, you know, than they could mm-hmm. before, for example, and things like that. But but I think you will get some pin up demand. You know, leisure, uh, hospitality sectors for travel and things like that. Well, uh, you know, that will certainly re- rebound. Tiffany Welding, thank you so much with PIMCO. Greatly appreciate it after a jobs report. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.